So God, we give you this time and space. We've gathered here because we need to hear something that we cannot tell ourselves. And so we ask that you would speak clearly to us, help us to listen and to respond in obedience. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ, my name is Chris. I get to be one of the pastors here. Me amo Chris Pollock, y quiero saludarte en el fuerte y poderoso nombre de nuestro Señor Jesucristo. I want to invite you, I want to invite you to uh, turn your Bibles to the Psalms, Psalm 32, and I have some friends who have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to, uh, to just raise your hand. Somebody would love to bring you a Bible. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation in English. I'm sorry, that is about all I can do today. But I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 32. It is in the middle of your Bible. We have uh, Bibles in Spanish. If that is your heart language or you're practicing your Spanish like I am. And I invite you to, uh, to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word for us this evening. We are in a new series that we're calling to tell the truth. And so we listen to this confession out of the psalm. So hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 32. This sounds very much like a song. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, What joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Can you hear this song? When I refused to confess my sin, my body, it wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. But finally... Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment for you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. Our God says to us, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and I will watch over you. Do not be like the senseless horse or the mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. This is our good news. Many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust in the Lord So rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. My friends, shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. Throughout the ages, people would sing these psalms. Can you hear the music as we read it together? This is the word of God for the people of God, and it is the song of God's people. And so we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So earlier in the service, we said this piece together. 
we gather here to tell the truth. We don't have our lives together, and on our own, we cannot get them together. We confess. Confess is a key word. We confess that we are poor, and we are hungry, and we are thirsty for that which we cannot provide ourselves. We need God's grace, and we need each other. You know, we have been saying these words together since November the 29th of 2015. And the reason that I know it was that particular day is because that was our first Sunday as a brand new church. About a year ago, my nephew Tanner asked me one day, he said, Uncle Chris, why do we have to say the same thing every single week? Everyone already knows it. His question got me thinking, like most of his questions do, he always asks the most profound question, and I started thinking about it. Tanner was right. We do say these words every single week, and there is a reason. And if Tanner, who has said these words every single week, doesn't know why we say it, then maybe maybe it should be explained, because perhaps, maybe there are, though, there are others that don't know why we say it or where it came from. This statement that we say every single week is our creed together, but more than that is it's our confession, like Psalm 32. It's something that is unique to the 8th Street Church. Others that have visited our church from other places have heard it, and um, from time to time they'll come to uh, Pastor McHale or to me, and they will ask for a copy of it. So we give it away freely. We've given it to them. I've, I've even heard that it's been used in a university chapel somewhere in Kansas City. Still others have come to our church, they heard this confession, and then they said, well, if that's the kind of church they say that they want to be, maybe I'll stick around and see if they actually mean it. This is a unique, while others use this from time to, nine, from time, to time, this statement, uh, this creed, this confession really is unique to this community because it stands, along the, it stands alongside the Word and the Eucharist at the center of our worship, and, and we do this every single week. It's, it's at the center along with these two elements because we want this to be the centered narrative of our life together, and we want it to be the center narrative of our individual lives. I've come to the conclusion that each person has a personal story that is being written within them, and it's uniquely them. And yet, as, as that story is being written, at the same time, our, our story is being written together. And, and as we have these stories that are being written, and we're trying to live out these stories, and then we're forced to encounter and have relationships with and enjoy and argue with and even worship with others we recognize that they have unique and powerful stories to share as well. And we want to provide space here at our church because we believe that everybody's story is important. I don't, I don't know if you like stories. I love stories. And, and for a long time, I've been captured by people's stories. I read or I listen to, biography, I listen to biographies by the dozen. Currently, I'm reading Michelle Obama's book, Becoming Michelle Obama. It's a really great book. I'm always, always, always interested in how people's identities are formed. But what is even more interesting to me is how those individuals discover their own identities. 
And I'm coming to believe that my very own identity, who I am and and what I'm about and what I was created to be and do and who you are and what you're about and what you are created to be and do is cast within this larger, more, more, more hopeful narrative. It's a narrative that has Jesus sweeping us into him and to his work. It's a narrative that includes me and you, includes our neighbors together. Now, there are many stories, many narratives that shape and inform our own personal identities. You know these. We've talked about them over the last three years. Capitalism shapes our identities. Partisan politics, consumerism, they, put, they, they pull at us and push at us. They, they shape and they form us, some for the good, maybe, and then some for the bad. But the confession like the one that we said just a few minutes ago, that the the one that we say each week charges us with a great responsibility to be discerning in those narratives. It it gives us the ability, it invites us to be able to, to, to point out truths and virtues when we hear them in those narratives, but they also give us the courage to say with gusto when we hear the bad ones, that is a lie. What you said about me isn't the truth. So in our first days as a church, we had an idea of how we wanted to shape this. We had an idea about how we wanted to shape this whole thing. And we had an idea about what we wanted our narrative and our story to tell. And we also had an idea, as Dr. Paul said a few minutes ago, that we had practices that we, we thought were going to be, uh, that would move us as individuals and that would also move us as a collective body so that we might be able to together share a really Really, really good story. So some of you don't know the story about the 8th Street Church. If you don't know, um, in 2013, I went on a sabbatical with my family. My son Watson was about 12 years old, and my daughter Annabelle was about 8 years old. We borrowed a recreational vehicle, and we drove to my in-law's place. They live on a lake in Michigan, and we stayed in that little tiny recreational vehicle for about eight, eight weeks. You, you can see it. You know that I loved it. You know that Holly, eh. I rode my bicycle every day. Our family played in the water. We ate dinner outside. We talked with friends. It was like everything was slow. We went on a lot of walks. We shopped at great Midwestern farmer's markets. We tried to huddle in that little RV during a huge Midwestern rainstorm. But during those days, it wasn't just like a vacation. It was spiritually formative. I kept a journal close. I prayed a lot. And I read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, every single day. Something was happening inside me. I was equal parts at that time. I was equal parts fulfilled, and I was miserable. I didn't want my life to change, and I wanted everything about my life to change. During those days, I was serving as an, uh, on an executive team at a church, and, and I, was giving organize, I was giving organizational oversight to all of the kids at our church. That meant babies through college. And on a weekly basis, there are, I don't know, there were like a thousand young people that were represented and that we were responsible for each week. I worked with great people. I had a wonderful experience with our volunteers. I got to oversee staff. I 
Got to set strategic goals, run programs, give oversight to big budgets. I managed a large group of full-time and part-time individuals. But I was starting to realize that my church job, doing the church job that I had and the way that I was doing it was becoming about embracing a narrative, a story that didn't seem to fit with who I was or who I thought Jesus wanted me to be. Instead, a different kind of narrative, a larger narrative. I found myself immersing myself in that narrative, and that narrative was paralleled with contemporary consumer culture. Something was happening in me. It was like a holy ache. And the only thing, the only words that I have to describe that holy ache was this. I just wanted to be a pastor. Now, it may seem strange to you, because I, w- I was a pastor, but I wasn't becoming the kind of pastor that I wanted to be. Pastors are defined by a million different people in a million different ways, and I felt myself giving, I, I felt myself giving my own definition to pastor, and I didn't feel like it was faithful to the gospel like what I had hoped it would be. Pastors are seen as people who lead organizations, mind you. They're religious ones, and and they might be big ones or small ones, but pastors are judged on their entertainment abilities. They have now, they're pressed to have Instagram followings. They're loud on Twitter. They're involved in leadership seminars. They run their organizations like CEOs. They, They have to be tech savvy, and they... They have to build their churches in a way that attract people. And I began to feel a bit of pressure. It it didn't come from any one individual or the group of people that I was working with specifically, but I was feeling a type of pressure. It was an external pressure, but it was also a pressure within to work to try. I was trying to appease the God consumers that I was dealing with every single week. I realized that not only was I being shaped by consumer culture, but the people that I was serving and the narrative that I was telling was a consumer narrative as well. People had consumer expectations for their church. Was was the children's ministry program safe enough? Was the youth group fun enough? Was the college ministry cool enough? I had questions like this from time to time. What options do you have so that I will will want to bring my family here? I found this after a while to be extremely frustrating because those same people demanded, at the same time these same people demanded those kinds of things, I realized, I began to realize that they didn't want them for spiritual purposes and I had evoked and even told that consumer narrative. I'm not blaming them. We had, had set up the whole thing like that. And they weren't asking these questions for spiritual purposes. They just wanted their answers to be put on the smorgasbord of options that they had. Usually the services that we provide came behind softball or soccer or football or gymnastics activities. It it was just one of the options that they could choose from every single week. So you know, and let me qualify this, so you know, this isn't an indictment. This is not an indictment on the church that I was serving but I do feel like it was an indictment on churches everywhere. An embrace of a consumer type of culture, a consumer narrative. I struggled because I found that people didn't think about worship. They thought about music style. 
They didn't think about real community. They just wanted, they wanted affinity groups. They didn't think about authenticity. They were thinking about advancement. They didn't look around at the plight of their neighbors. They sold out to an idol called safety and security. They didn't think about generosity where we give our whole selves, but they were thinking in terms of charity. They always asked the question, how can I give the minimum? They didn't ask ever, what will you help me become? But rather, they asked the question, what will you do for me? And, and I had perpetuated that narrative. Without meaning to, I had invited that narrative. And I was considering this thing that was happening during my sabbatical, this, this holy ache inside me. I was considering these things right at a time when there were some major transitions going on at our church. Holly could see it in me, and we knew that we were being together, invited into something new. At the same time, I had just finished some doctoral work, and I was, explaining, I, I was exploring some ideas, and I was asking some questions about the way church was done. And I was looking inside myself, but also for others to find a more faithful way that I could participate as my full self in an expression of church that didn't seem to consider anything outside of, of this concept, that my relationship with Jesus is just means that I go to heaven someday. And I wanted to discover something new, something more robust, like maybe, maybe let's not miss it out on the inbreaking of Jesus in the here and now. Anybody been there and asked those deep kind of questions? I wanted to be the kind of pastor that could serve a community of hope and yet still be myself. I, I looked for that. I wanted to be faithful to what I, to, the, to the biblical story. Pastors, my friends, pastors are human. They're just like you. They want to be, they're men and women that want to be among their neighbors and they want to be in their faith communities. They want to be in homes and in hospitals and have friends and share lives. And yet, they have, in some way inside of them, they have a hopeful kingdom vision. They're slaves to hope. Pastoring is about an, uh, an authenticity. It's about living authentically in attention. It's about standing in the middle, there in the midst of doubt and hope, uh, of fear and confidence, questions and answers. Pastoring is about standing in the middle of heaven and hell. And then it's about inviting others to stand in that tension as well and say to them, it's okay if you live in tension. I wanted to be the kind of pastor that could authentically serve a group of people as they tried to work out and understand what it means to have the kingdom of God arrive here among us. And still, yet with eagerness and hope in this dark and evil age, hope that the kingdom of God would arrive soon in its fullness. I wanted to live in that tension and I wanted to live in that tension with others. I wanted to become more and more aware of the words that I valued, words like faithfulness, mercy, obedience, justice, compassion, reconciliation, discipline, generosity, neighborliness. I found that those words that I valued had been replaced by words like uh, legacy and impact. And do you have enough charisma, personality, savvy? Are you a good leader? 
Those were be the words that were being described, at least in the circles where I was, that were, that were used to describe the, the best pastors, not the rich, deep words. I watched as doing church didn't mean being wrecked when Eucharistic hospitality was on display or that nobody considered that the poor are to be taken care of. Doing church didn't mean anymore imagining the life change that would occur if groups of people would actually love their enemies or the the fact that that we should be blown away when someone lets another one off the hook in an act of forgiving, reconciling action. The narrative that I was buying into didn't paint a picture of the scandalous hope of the apostles themselves, the scandalous hope that they had imagined and then saw when an oppressor and the oppressed were baptized in the same water and how it changed entire communities and power dynamics everywhere. I knew I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a pastor that prayed, not just a pastor that managed. I I wanted to be a pastor that read the scriptures and found it so scandalous and so amazing and such good news that it just had to be shared. I wanted to study so that I could tell the truth because you deserve it and because God deserves it. I wanted to preach good sermons. I wanted to hear confessions. I wanted to help people in the penance that they had to pay because of their sins. And I wanted to be there when those people confessed those sins. And I wanted to be able to say to them as a minister of the gospel, my brother or my sister, you are absolved of those sins. They are now thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. The distance that they are to you is as far as the east is from the west. So from this point forward, be free. I wanted to be the kind of pastor that was also a good husband and a good father. And I wanted, maybe more than any of that stuff, the kind of freedom and forgiveness for my own self. I wanted to know the reality of what Jesus preached and the disciples witnessed and Paul wrote about and the apostles proclaimed. I wanted to know the truth that resurrection changes everything. So I was looking for a way to explore some of the questions I had. And at that time, these weren't necessarily questions about God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit. I, I, I felt like I felt, I felt solid in those, but they were questions that I thought that faithful, spirit-led church people who proclaim salvation should be willing to explore. They came, these questions came with a deeper pastoral call. Questions like this. What does it mean to lead a group of people into a conversation? A narrative that was more imaginative and looked more like the kingdom of God. That looked more neighborly. I wondered, are there people out there that want to have real conversations and real relationships, no matter how difficult that might be? Were there others out there that could be captured, that that wanted to be captured by the hopeful prophetic vision to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God? Was there a group of people out there that was longing for transformation? Would, Would there be a group of people that would let me be their pastor? To be as vulnerable as it really took to be a good pastor? Would there be a church that didn't have to work through marketing schemes or that hated playing the politics as much as I did? 
Could there be a church that would trust me with pastoral authority and yet be the kind of church that I could trust so that they would hold me accountable? Would there be the kind of church out there that would let me confess my sins that would be okay if I shared my brokenness and would they receive me in, in a way that I could find healing while at the same time they would invite me, no, they would require me to do the same of them. What? Would there be a community that would be safe enough for me and for other people to do like the psalmist who was wasting away if he couldn't get it out, if he couldn't tell his story, all of the goods and all of the bads, all of it, the whole king caboodle, everything, because if he didn't get it out, he was likely to burst. I wondered to myself, does that kind of community exist? And such, does a kind of community exist in such a way that we could gather here to tell the truth? That we could quickly and readily admit that indeed we do not have our lives together and on our own we cannot get them together. I could see that kind of, I, I could see the kind of community like, like the psalmist. I, I, it was there. It was like, like the psalmist felt, felt it, it, his bones wasting away. If in urgency and passion he couldn't proclaim, if I keep silent, my bones will waste away. My, my groaning will go on all day. For day and night, God's hand is heavy on me. It's like my strength is sapped as in the heat of summer. We know what that feels like. Another way to say it, I was at my wit's end. I need God's grace and I need others. I thought to myself very seriously about this. What, what group anywhere confesses that sort of vision? And they say it all together at the same time. Other groups they confess a vision. It usually goes like this. It, it goes, we're number one. We're number one. You've been at sporting events like that. Some of us sing Go Cubs Go after a win. Most of us during the Olympics chant USA, USA. But these are, these are dominant kinds of collective confessions. This is what crowds norm, normally shout. They shout, we want victory. They're looking for bloodshed or crucify him is what they shout together. But I could imagine a different kind of community. I could imagine a confessing community. I, I could imagine a community that had holy imagination, that engaged in holy conversations. I could imagine a, a community that nurtured holy relationships. The image in my mind and my part in it was so real that I could touch it. So we set out to find you. Holly and I, Holly was starting a new school year of teaching. My kids were starting a new year of learning. This week, um, a picture of our kids standing next to a sold sign in our front yard just yesterday came up on our Facebook memories. I remember that was four years ago this weekend, and when Holly sent me that picture after my household, I shut myself in my office and I cried for a whole day. It was difficult, but we were ready to leave to find you. And we were ready to do that for this vision it was in processing these, these questions that I had with my good friend Steve Green that I felt the desire and the urge to, to seek you out. The 8th Street Church community. Shortly after that time and I had processed all of that, Pastor McHale and 
her husband Brent also caught the vision of this confessing kind of community. So one day we sat down and we talked together and we planned out what we wanted worship to look like at what was then Midtown Church. We knew that we wanted to have a liturgy. Liturgy means work of the people, but, but we, we knew that we wanted to talk about our work together in this way. This is a work of people that leads to a good story told. And when we went around and we investigated the liturgy of different churches and we studied it together in our own, uh, in our own history, we found one that we wanted to copy. And it looked very much like a recovery meeting. I don't know if you've ever been to a recovery meeting, but a recovery meeting does the same thing over and over, just like we do. And it reshapes the entire narrative by its reputation. It restories the people. And in each recovery meeting, there's an element of gathering, an element of listening to one another, an element of responding to the stories that we're told. And then that collection of people are sent into a world that will try to wreck them with old narratives, but they're urged with a pin or a chip. And you're urged with a practice to remember where you came from. And somehow, some way, God is writing a new story within you and within us. And so we started by writing this, our responsive reading. It's our confession. It's a creed. It's a sacrament of sorts. It's a statement that reminds us of who we are and why we are here and where we want to be. And as we enter into this place of worship, it reminds us that we're being reshaped. And it invites us into a new narrative. But there's actually so much more than that. It sets a table for us to feast together at the end of our worship and to practice becoming who we said we wanted to be. I want to say this. I'm grateful to my former church, Bethany First Church, for trusting me in that faith journey and in that process. They helped financially, and they helped in their prayers so that I could seek you out, and then we could seek you out as a pastoral team together. And it's not easy, but I will tell you, it has been worth every minute Because, my friends, you are the embodiment of that vision. I'm glad this community is here. You are the community that I was dreaming about in 2013. I'm so glad that we found each other. I am glad that you let me pastor in the way that I'm called to. You don't do it under obligation, but you do it in faithfulness. And I am so thankful that our stories are being rewritten together as we root ourselves in the biblical story that leads us to this wonderful table of hospitality. This table changes who we are. It makes us who we said we wanted to be. If our, confession of this wonderful, if our confession of this wonderful statement is that we don't have our lives together and on our own we can't get them together, then, and our invitation is to come into this vision, then life together at the Lord's table is the solidification of that life together. So I want to invite you to this table. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to this table to become the people that you said that you wanted to be just a few minutes ago. I want to invite you to this table because what happens at this table restories who you are and it restories who I am. When we come to this table every single week, we are reminded of the fact that there are narratives all around us. Narratives that try to tell us who we are 
when we're really not what they say. And it reminds us of what God thinks we are in the person of his son. That is why we say these words together. That is why we hear this word together. And that is why we come to this table together. You know, as a part of our, as a part of our vision, we confess that uh, we are hungry and thirsty for that which we cannot provide ourselves. We need God's grace and we need one another. And so we come to this table in order to practice that and in order to receive that grace. So each week we come to Jesus' table and we say thank you. It is a table where we are made into a community. Is it a table that we are invited to by Jesus himself? It is a table that is called the thank you. It is called the Eucharist. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to the Lord's table. And I want to invite you to come with friends. But before we do, I want to, write, I want to remind you of a different story and a different narrative that is the best story and the best narrative that we can be shaped by. In his generosity, on the night before he was betrayed by those he came to save, Jesus took the bread at dinner and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. Friends, this is another way to say, I'm displaying all my love to you. And then after supper, in the same way, he took the cup and he held it up and he said, this cup represents the new covenant that comes in my blood and it has been poured out for you. And whenever you drink this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Everyone who confesses this Lord, everyone who wants this story to be their story to be reshaped, everyone who wants to hear God's truth for them, you are welcome to this table. I invite you to exit the left side of your row, move down one of our aisles, but I invite you to come with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion at our church, we receive it because everything that comes from him is a gift. So come and meet these servers, listen to what they have to say, and then dip the bread into the cup and be grateful. Friends, what you said just a few minutes ago, you are becoming when you come to the Lord's table. So I invite you to come whenever you are ready.